Hello out there. It's Jolene with Ghost Towns and History of Montana. Thank you for joining us for another podcast. Today, I'm going to tell you about the first school in Montana taught by Lucy Darling amid wild surroundings. This one appeared in the Ekalaka Eagle on March 12th. 1920. In the early 60s, gallows frames on which the vigilantes hung road agents were more conspicuous than either schoolhouses or churches. According to history, there were 20 dance halls and saloons to one educational institution. Yet, the first thought of the pioneer was, we must educate our young. Mrs. S.W. Park, or you may know her by her maiden name, Lucia Darling, of Warren, Ohio, writing to the Montana Historical Society, told how the first schools were established in Montana as follows. A journey to the headwaters of the Missouri River, across the plains and over the mountains, years ago was one of a strange variety and much adventure and interest. From Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago, to Quincy and St. Joseph, then the western limit of railroad travel, many objects of curiosity were presented to the residents of the West, as Ohio was then called. From St. Joseph to Omaha, the Great Muddy River, sweeping down the valley from remote springs, made an indelible impress upon one's memory. Omaha itself was an isolated frontier town, built largely of logs with few houses, more than one story in height, but the great territorial capital on the bluff looked down upon the little hamlet, keeping watch and ward over its citizens. Five miles out of Omaha was the open, undulating prairie, vacant, except as an occasional log house, usually deserted, demonstrated that the occupant had been lured yet farther west. Fremont and Columbus were two settlements containing perhaps a dozen houses, unpainted and unenclosed, and the great valley of the Platte stretched thence westernly for six or seven hundred miles, unoccupied, save as Fort Kearney and Fort Laramie interrupted the solitude. An Indian war interested us along Loop Fork between the Pawnees and the Agalaha Sioux, in which a few whites, loving adventure, were taking a hand. The Platte Valley seemed a useless waste, incapable of growing anything more than coarse grasses, sage, sunflowers, and smaller blossoms. Day by day, the slow-moving trains were lifted higher and higher toward the mountains until Laramie Peak and Fremont's Peak came into our view. Chimney Rock, Scott's Bluffs, Church Butte and Independence Rock were great curiosities to the pilgrims. Exciting and absorbing interest, and we did not know we were in the South Pass until comparing a woodcut in Fremont's expedition. With our surroundings, we recognized that we were on the roof of the continent. Thence over the Lander Road and through a confused mass of mountains to the Great Snake River Plains and thence up Snake River to the headwaters of the Missouri, gave the pilgrim a surfeit of travel and made him sigh for a rest. 
In looking back to that journey from Ohio, I think of nothing that interested us more than our arrival at Bannock, the growth of a day, whose existence and fame went hand in hand and spread over the entire continent in a single season. After three months and a half of slow traveling over plains and mountains, through valleys and across rivers, our party was looking forward to Bannock as a place where we might rest, perhaps for the winter. Starting from the lonely horse prairie the morning of September 17, 1863, we looked anxiously from the top of each ascent, hoping to see the longed-for city. But it was afternoon before we halted on Salt Lake Hill and looked down upon the little settlement on the banks of the grasshopper. The view was not an inspiring one, there were a few log houses of somewhat diminutive size on Yankee Flat and across the creek upon a bar beside a road that wound along the valley not far from the bank of the streams were log houses of varying sizes and dimensions. In the distance, the most conspicuous sight was the gallows, fitly erected near the graveyard in Hangman's Gulch, just beyond the town and on which we had been told Union men were hung. Of course, this was only a report, but it was during the Civil War and much bitter feeling existed among the people, many of whom had fled to the mountains to avoid the troubles consequent thereon. As we stood on the hill overlooking the Valley of Promise, a small boy of the party exclaimed, Say, Papa! Bang-up is a humbug, or Bannock is a humbug. There was no express descent, but the great possibilities that existed in each valley and the newness of the prevailing industry made the place attractive, for we had been hearing for weeks with increasing emphasis of the almost fabulous mines in and around the town. Winding down the long hill, we encamped upon Yankee Flat, near the banks of the streams, and the oxen were released from the labors of their long journey. Here we found out what we had apprehended would be the case, namely that it would be impossible for us to go by way of Hellgate to Lewiston, the capital of the territory of Idaho. As we had contemplated, as we were told that the Milan Road was filled with fallen trees and there was snow upon the mountain divides, we therefore determined to remain in Bannock for the winter, and we moved into a house formerly used as a store, which stood on the banks of the grasshopper, in which five rooms were partitioned off, and when the walls had been covered with muslin, pictures hung, carpets put down, it seemed very homelike and comfortable. When one has been moving for a few months, he is not inclined to be fastidious as to the style of the house he occupies. During our second year there was a long continued rain, which melted a heavy snow, soaked through our mud roof, and caused it to rain inside the house long after it had become fair outside. There are unwritten chapters in the history of every new settlement, which no pen will ever write. But could they be written? They would tell of many heroines as well as heroes, women as brave and deserving of credit as those who landed from the Mayflower. They had much to do in winning the West 
and a higher civilization has always followed closely in the footsteps of the women pioneers. It is the pioneer homemaker and the pioneer school teacher who have paved the way for the permanent church and Sunday school and have often exerted a more lasting influence than was realized at the time. Bannock was a tumultuous and rough, the headquarters of a band of highwaymen and lawlessness and misrule seemed to be the prevailing spirit of that place. But into this little town had drifted many worthy people who unbendingly held firmly to their principles of right. There were few families there, and the parents were anxious to have their children in school, and it never was known when there came a cry from the children that some schoolman did not rise up in response. I was requested to take charge of such an institution, and the question of finding room in which to teach was a matter of some difficulty. We learned of a man in town who owned some houses, which it was thought might answer the purpose, and Chief Justice Sidney Edgerton, who was my uncle, went with me to interview him. With some difficulty, we found his humble residence and rapped loudly at the door. For some time, no one responded, but finally a man's voice called, Come in! Pushing open the door, we saw in the dim light a man lying on buffalo robes on the floor. He did not rise to meet us, for he had not fully recovered from the effects of imbibing too freely of the favorite beverage, then so plentiful. My uncle stated our errand. Yes, glad of it, he said. Damn shame, children running around the streets. Ought to be in school. I will do anything I can to help her. She can have this room, dirt cheap. $50 a month. It was sometime in October 1863 that the school was opened in a room in our own house on the banks of the Grasshopper Creek near where the Ford and Footbridge were located. It was a somewhat strange gathering of school books for they came from Maine to Missouri and many other states. The exciting time when the Vigilance Committee effectually rid the territory of the band of highwaymen occurred during this period, and the gallows tree up Hangman's Gulch many times bore fruit for the healing of the nation. I cannot remember the names of all the scholars in that school. With the aid of Mrs. A. E. Grader of Dillon, I have made out the following list, which I think is fairly correct. Emma Zoller, Emma Cutler, Susan Burchett, Mary Teeters, Charles Van Camp, J. Edward Watson, Wright Prescott Edgerton, Delia Cutter, George Burchett, George Teeters, Jenny Bennett, Euphemia Van Camp, James J. Sanders, Molly Dye, Matilda French, William Jones, Henry French, Margaret French, Pauline Edgerton, and George French. The houses in which this school was taught did not approach in architectural beauty, the Little Red Schoolhouse. And it is gratifying to learn that the mud-covered, mud-plastered, and mud-lined house with its wooden benches and improvised desks has given place to finely equipped schoolhouses. And that our incongruous methods of study compelled by the diversities of our school book has yielded to the courses of study 
which meet the approval of the best teachers in the land. Since that time, I have been identified with one of the other historic schools of the country of great repute, but I always look back to the days I spent striving to help the little children in Bannock with a profound gratification. The school was not pretentious, but it was in response to the yearning for education, and it was the first. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another story. Check back in with us soon. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. We're Ghost Towns and History of Montana. Or check out our website, www.mtghosttowns.com. You'll find our YouTube, our blogs, our newsletter, our magazine, all the good stuff we got going on. So come and visit us. And until next time, take care out there.